Good morning, church. I want to take just a moment and uh, welcome you here. If you're uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning, I'm uh, I'm not the senior pastor here. I'm a brand new associate pastor, uh, born and raised right here in Laramie, Wyoming, uh, but have recently moved back from North Carolina, where I is uh, and am still in the process of getting a master's of divinity from Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Um, but we're glad to have you. Um, let's just pray. Father, I thank you for a new day. Lord, I thank you that your mercy uh, is clearly new every day, Lord. We revel in that. We thank you that uh, it has nothing to do with us, Lord, and therefore we can enjoy what it is to be called your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray today that as we enter into this time of looking at your word, Lord, that you would strengthen me to just say what it says. Lord, I recognize that there's nothing in me that is strong or wise or able to change a person's life. So Lord, I just pray that I would be obedient enough to say what you said. And Lord, we know what your word does and that is change lives. Help me today to do this, Lord. Lord, I pray for these here that their hearts would be open. Lord, that uh, in the busyness of life, of getting to church, all the challenges that often get thrown in our face, that this would be a time where we set those things back. Lord, we rest again, once again, on you, knowing you are our Savior, that you love us, and you have saved us. I thank you, Lord. We'll give you all the glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I want to take some time and I want to talk about what God's word says about discipleship uh, in our lives. As many of you know, um, I, I kind of introduced this last week, maybe, maybe did great or maybe not, I don't know, but, but one of the reasons that, um, that I'm coming here is to be a part of the elder team uh, and the pastoral team to help um, LVC to serve the Lord better. And so um, we're excited about that. We want to think through as traditions have their way of making our, their way into our churches or just culture changes, right? And we may have a better way to do children's ministry. Maybe not. We may have a better way to approach youth ministry. Maybe not. Um, but as you know, this year is the 500th year of the Reformation, and is where Martin Luther, after a number of, I would say, pre-reformers had been kind of knocking on the door of what, what's going on in the church. And I think that this is a good time for us as a, as a church in America. You look at the things that are going on to slow down a little bit, to think about what is it we're doing? Why is it we're doing it? And uh, I am honored to have been asked to come and be a part of that here at Laramie Valley Chapel. Um, in order to do... Uh, to talk a little bit about discipleship today. I want to review last week um, and bring you on board. Last week we talked about the gospel, what it was in its, uh, in its four major parts. I want to review that, and then we're going to talk about how the gospel, where does that fit? We're in this odd place in America where in many ways if we accept the gospel, there's really nothing in our lives that challenge that gospel. You, you're, you're autonomous in America. You can kind of be who you want. Now, we're losing that, are we not? Right? 
it's becoming very clear that if you stand for any moral stance, any, any hard truth, that you actually are now kind of an enemy of anything goes, right? So I don't think we can just sit on our laurels and wait for things to happen. We need to recognize this, these things are going on around us. And so what does it look like to be a disciple uh, of Christ? And that discipleship is kind of the playing field uh, where the gospel gets played out. So um, we determined uh, last week that the gospel is the power of God. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in, for in it that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we talked last week that the gospel is, is more than what we could define as just words, right? We know that it means it's a good message. It's good news. We know that. We would recognize that. I kind of use the example of the rhino, right? It's one thing to sit here and talk about its power and how, and how uh, intimidating it is, but it would be quite a different thing to let one in the doors, right? It's, there is a power that comes along with what that is, and the gospel is powerful to change a life. Um, when I was uh, a brand new believer in Christ, when I accepted Jesus, um, it wasn't just a mental ascent to recognizing who God was, who I was, um, who Christ was, and what I needed to do. There was a power. There was something that changed in my life. I went from life or death and into life. And that played out kind of like this. I didn't grow up in the church. I had no church background. Um, was just a, a pure out American heathen. And, um, but I had a believing and praying grandmother who every time I stayed with her would sing, Jesus loves me. You guys know the next verse? This I know, why for the Bible tells me so. So the only thing I knew, <laughs> the only thing I knew about the Bible was that Jesus loves me, that I knew. Why? Because I think the Bible tells me so. I did, didn't even know that. But let me tell you what is interesting. I was an electrician. I was a brand new apprentice electrician up in Gillette, Wyoming. We were working at the coal mines and they have these big high um, coal silos. And I would have to go up and down. There's these one-man elevators, if you've ever been in them, that get you to the top and get you to the bottom. And we were running all this pipe and doing all this work. Um, and I couldn't wait for my journeyman to ask me to get in and go down and bend a piece of pipe and bring it back up because I was so invigorated inside. The power of the gospel had so changed my life, I couldn't wait to get in that elevator and sing, Jesus loves me. How weird, right? So here I am, top of my lungs. You know, Jesus loves me. This I know. I'm sure somebody probably heard me as I'm going up and down, but... But God had so powerfully changed my life. It was more than words on a piece of paper. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We talked last week about the four parts of the gospel, which need to be a recognizable part of our testimony of salvation. They are who is God, who is man, who is Christ, and what should be our response? First, who is God? He is, first and foremost, utterly different and holy. I took a couple years ago a class called Ordination Preparation, 
And we all sat together in this class, all, well, I was kind of the old guy. All the younger guys and me sat in this class and Dr. Pettigrew, who I think may even be coming out here this year to, to teach uh, historical theology, but he's been teaching at a seminary for, I think, going on 46, 47 years, something like that. And this class was he, you had to get up in front of everybody, and here's Dr. Pettigrew, and he's sitting here, and he's asking you deep, serious theological questions and asking you to provide biblical text to support your position. And the very first question for the very first guy that was not me, I was very grateful, right? I'm sweating, and I'm not even up there. And this poor kid is there, and Dr. Pettigrew looks out at him and says, what is the foremost attribute of God? And he, like me, looked a little dumbfounded <laughs> and said, uh, love? <laughs> Dr. Pettigrew is very gracious. He said, no, it's holiness. It is set-apartness, Right? What is it that makes God who he is? Everything else falls under that. There are great attributes of God, love and justice, righteousness. Um, but his, uh, the one that sets him apart, right, is that very term. He is set apart. He is holy. So God is utterly different. He is holy. Also, God is sovereign. In other words, he maintains the right to be God. He is also just. He says of himself in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is just. Secondly, we asked who is man? The first thing we got to recognize about man is that he is created. We, I think, especially in the United States, maybe all over the world, I think it's just the nature of man to want to be autonomous, to want to be gods ourselves. We need to recognize in the gospel that we are created. We are not the creators. God has demands of us. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Mankind is also fallen and unable to save himself. In Romans chapter 1, Paul reveals that all Gentiles are condemned because of general revelation in which God placed within creation. Well, I ran into a different animal uh, down in the south because everybody grows up in the church or knows somebody who has or their uncle's a pastor or, I mean, you name it. You can't talk to somebody that doesn't have church experience down there. But what I find out west is that people look around and they observe creation and they recognize that there's a God. You know them, I know them. These folks, they take comfort in the fact that, well, I go hunting, that's where I worship. Or I go fishing, that's where I worship. And the irony in that is that, is that is the very thing that God says he will condemn man for, is that they knew God but did not worship him, what? As God. Romans 1, 20 and 21, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. 
Not only are all Gentile people of the world condemned because of their natu- of natural revelation, but Paul makes it clear that the Jews are not exempt from this condemnation. He says in Romans 3, 9 through 10, what then? Are we better than they? That's, that's Paul being a Jew. Are we better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. Let us not forget, though, that man is valuable. The value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. Years ago, when I had my business here in Laramie, I spoke with another small businessman who was a retailer, and um, he was lamenting a little bit, and he was telling me that his business was, was slowly dying, Um, he found that the same amount of people would come in and they appreciated his knowledge of all the products that that he was selling. But ultimately, he said this to me, and it kind of took me off guard, is that they don't put a value on it. In other words, they appreciated the knowledge that they could get, but as soon as they got the knowledge they wanted, they would go and order whatever they needed from Amazon or or some other other form of uh, buying the thing. So, So... so value is determined, money, right? The value of something is determined by that which people are willing to pay for it. So I can have a million and a half dollar home in Laramie and it could, be, it could have cost me legitimately that, right? I could decide, well, I want to sell that. So I put a million and a half dollars on it, but nobody will buy it. Is the home worth a million and a half dollars today? No, right? It may be in ideals, but if something is not willing to pay what you're asking, then the value does not match. So God established the value of human life and what he was willing to pay for it. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The value of human life is determined by God who was willing to die for you and me while what we were good people no while we were sinners the third question we must consider is who is Christ Philippians 2 5 reveals that prior to his earthly existence Christ was in the form of God Hebrews 1 says that God has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who was Christ? He was Emmanuel, God with us. God who sets aside his godness to become a man, to die in my place, in your place, in every man's place. I often think about this when I think about Peter in the garden at Gethsemane. I think about how um, the cohort of men, which the cohort, Roman cohort of men is 600 men, they show up in the garden uh, to take Jesus Peter rises up, right, like Peter does. 
He cuts off the ear. Jesus heals him, and what's he say? Right? Peter, don't you know that I could call down legions of angels? Think of that. God himself becomes a man in Christ Jesus. He gives up his right to use his godness to die for you and me. He could have, clearly, he says, I could have called them down. I don't need you to war for me, Peter. I am here to do and obey that which God has called me to do. The last question that we considered was, what is the proper response to our condition? Romans 3.22 says that the righteousness of God can be obtained through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. How many can believe? All those who, who believe, right? The righteousness has been purchased. You, you can be saved if you what? Believe. So our response is to believe in the work that God did. Believing is not work, right? It's accepting the work that was done. It is a recognition of the work so that no man can boast, as Ephesians 2 says. As Christians, we need to be able to identify with the gospel. I had a man tell me once, if you were born in a garage, would it make you a car? Think about that. If you can't identify the four major parts of the gospel in your testimony, you need to prayerfully consider why. I'm, don't superimpose them, but if they don't exist, be asking the Lord. Lord, I really don't identify with your godness. Lord, I really don't identify with my weakness. I want you as my Savior, but I'm not sure I'm, what I know or think about you being my Lord. So I titled the sermon today, The Gospel, Now What? At last week's staff meeting, Pastor Howe reminded me that as teachers of God's word, we must answer the question, now what? So when we teach something, what do, what do we expect? Now that God has saved us, what should be our response? After the resurrection, the burning question in the apostles' minds would have been, what? Now what? What are we going to do? In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the word says this, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I want to just stop right there for a second. As I was reading and as I was studying this, I just pondered the reality that these eleven guys, this is a very finite amount of people, right? They had walked with Jesus from the beginning. They had seen every miracle, had watched things that you cannot explain. They had heard him teach. They had been loved by him. But yet what? They doubted. Christian, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I can identify with doubting in my faith. Aren't you glad that the men who witnessed all the miracles and the resurrection still doubted? That you can identify with that. The scripture goes on to say, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority, how much authority? All of it, right? All authority has been given to me where? In heaven and where? 
on earth. Just ponder that for a second. Now, because of that authority, what's he say? Go, therefore, and what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. uh, Making disciples is the main verb in the sentence. Going, of course, is important. Right? We can't make disciples if we don't go and reach out to those disciples or potential disciples, right? And what are we supposed to do? Teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded to you. One thing I want you to notice is that it does not say go and make converts. What have we just learned about the gospel? God makes the converts through the power of the gospel. We preach his word. We preach the gospel. God changes lives, we do what? Make disciples. The apostles, by Jesus' grace, his presence, and his word, were to make disciples and to teach them to observe all things that Jesus commanded them. So a disciple of Christ is one who observes in all things life that which Jesus commanded the apostles. Let me ask this. Can we disciple those who are not yet born again? Think about that. Can we disciple people who are not yet regenerate? Well, we do it all the time, right? We do it with our kids. We teach them every verse of the Bible. We send them to Awanas. They may or may not be regenerated. They may or may not be saved, right? I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. It's a great thing to teach people that the ways of Jesus are not just to be considered, but to be followed, right? But there's a major warning in this. My kids have grown up in church. Um, I was saved before before, uh, either one of them came, came to existence. So they come up, they go to church every day, but I was very careful as a dad, very careful as a dad, even though it was tempting, not to force them into the faith of Christianity. I wanted someday that they would be able to look back and definitely in a defined way say, look, I was living like this and next thing I know, I'm singing the only song I know, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the power of God changed my life. I could have convinced them, I could have taken them to the courtroom and we could have walked through every apologetic and why, but that does not regenerate a heart. God does. So in our lives, in my family, we purpose to not do that as tempting as it was. Um, It was a few years back. We were were reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress in my family. I was just reading it to my boys at night. And my son looks at me some days later, and he says, you know what, Dad? And I said, no, what's going on, son? And he's distraught, noticeably distraught. He says, Dad, I'm not going to make it what are you talking about, son? He said, I'm not going to make it to heaven. I said, no, you're not going to make it, bud. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just sharing the truth. The Spirit of God was convicting my son that he understood that he was to be a sinner and there was no chance for him. Then we walk him through the gospel, right? 
Then he puts his faith in Christ. Then he identifies with Christ in his baptism. So, we can disciple those who are not yet born again, but we need to be warned, right? That it's, a, it's tricky business. The more difficult question is, can you be born again and not be a disciple? This is the subject of much debate in the American church. Can you be born again and not be a disciple? Well, we know that the Bible clearly says you can be born again and be a poor disciple. We see that in 1 Corinthians, right? But let me read this in... Uh, um, In 1 Corinthians 3, 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until you, now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Clearly, in the First Corinthians, in First Corinthians, the church is, I would say, much like the American church today. The, the persecution had not risen deeply enough, and in their minds, discipleship was kind of, well, I'll get around to that. But can we hold to that in the Scripture? Context, I can tell you, will tell us that the lack of or the denying of discipleship is so tightly knit to the gospel that you cannot separate them. That's why we struggle so much in theology in America with, with the idea of lordship and salvation because in the Bible they are two things but so tightly knit together that you have a difficult time separating them. So let me talk to you about context for a second. Imagine uh, for just a moment that you're blindfolded and that you're being led out onto this field and you can smell that the grass has been freshly cut but you're not quite sure what's going on and so I speak to you and I say hey we're here to play a game a ball game I hand you this ball you feel it you feel it has two points on it it's oblong it almost falls out of your hand because nobody can hold a football Right? Now, as I get ready to take your blindfold off, I take it off. What are you expecting to see? What kind of field are you expecting to be in? A football field, right? Well, the gospel has been misunderstood outside of discipleship. You, you can't take the ball, that's the gospel, and put it into a different field. So if we take the blinders off and you look out and you see that we're in a baseball field, it just doesn't match, right? It doesn't make the gospel not the gospel, but it doesn't fit quite right. In, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, one scholar says this, the modern Western phenomena where a decision for Christ is popular in the larger social community was not true of Jesus' setting. He goes on to say, Today, one might associate with Christ simply because it is culturally appropriate. Such a decision was impossible in the first century. 
To be a disciple of Christ in the first century was to be baptized into his identity. I'll have you turn to Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 26 through 34. We'll take a look at Jesus' definition of discipleship. When we talk about baptism, when we just had them, they are, uh, it's an identifying marker in our lives, is it not? It's something we do, but we lose a little bit of what it means. In the, in the first century, if you said, I'm going to follow Christ, and you were a Jew, you lost your family, you lost the synagogue, your fa- you lost your home, you lost everything. So when you considered coming to Christ, you knew immediately that there was a demand on your life that coming to Christ was going to cost you everything. So when we consider the gospel, if, if we approach it in this kind of First Corinthians or American way where, well, I'll take it, I'll leave it, I'll get around to it, then we have missed the context of the gospel, which is to give it all. Jesus is so clear in these texts of what it costs to be a disciple. Luke 14, 26 through 34. Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and he said to them, let me just pause here for a second. This is the last weeks of Jesus' ministry. He is on a journey to Jerusalem for his, would be his fourth, uh, would be his fourth Passover, which he's going to give himself up as the Passover lamb. Great multitudes are traveling I think because Jesus is there, one, but secondly, because people are coming from around the world or the known world to go to Passover. So many miracles are being done, and Jesus is within the great multitudes. Within that multitude, we can clearly, I think we we have to push it a little bit to say, but there's probably believers and unbelievers. I think he's going to make it clear here that there are both. In verse 26, if anyone comes to me, Later, he's going to say, come after me, but I want you to pay attention. He says, if anybody comes to me, right? The impression there is that these are people that do not and are not following Jesus as Messiah and as Lord. So what does he say? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you all, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish? Verse 31. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Verse 33, so likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a tremendous warning. Jesus is saying, count the cost. This being a Christian is, is more than just getting your ticket out of hell. It's a giving up of your life. It's a giving up of your rights. We, we spoke of it in Ephesians uh, 2 that Christ gave up his right 
to be God. This is the same call. I'm giving up my right to be autonomous, to live the life that I want to live, to go after anything that I want to do, and I'm going to first pray and ask God. So what do we learn from these verses? The context of the gospel is discipleship. The gospel is the ball. Discipleship is the context of which we play in. It's not an option. It's a demand. Jesus makes it clear. Context demands that whether you are coming to Christ or coming after him, you must forsake all. Forsaking all does not mean leaving all. Rather, it is a paradigm shift in how you view those things that you have. If you own a home, use it for ministry. If you are wealthy, use your wealth to further the ministry of Christ. If you are poor, serve with all of your heart. It simply means to forsake all and live for Christ first. Not long after the Great Commission, Matthew 28, we see Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives. He's giving his final instruction to the apostles. He tells them to tarry in Jerusalem until they receive the promised Holy Spirit. After asking whether Jesus will restore the kingdom to Israel, he responds. This is in the, uh, the book of Acts, the book of Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. It is not for you to know times or season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon, upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud and received out of their sight. So Jesus commanded them to make disciples. A disciple is one who forsakes all and follows all that Christ commanded. If Christ commanded it, we are to do it. In John 13, um, right after, we're in the upper room here in John 13, and Judas has just left. And we know that Judas is going out. He's going out to get the Roman cohort, and he's coming back, right, to murder the God of the world. In that context, Jesus looks at his, at the 11 left, and he says, this new command I give you to love one another, to agape one another. This is a command that Jesus gives. We don't need to pray about whether or not we are to love one another. It's a command. If your brother has offended you, don't even come worship. Leave, run, make it right before you come back here. It's a command to love. It's not an option to love. You say, I've heard this said, especially out here in the West. I've grown up here my whole life. My, that I'm, well, my life doesn't need to be a doormat. I'm telling you what. I don't know how you want to define it. But love that defines Christianity is not like love that is in the world. It's the kind of love that is so sacrificial that the world looks on it and says, that makes no sense. Didn't that guy just steal from you? Yep. But I know he's a brother. I know he can fall into sin. And I'm going to love him. And I'm going to treat him the way I was treated when Christ died for me on the cross. Well,
Well, thanks for bearing with me here. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to wrap up. This is another location where we see the ascension of Christ off the Mount of Olives. He gives some instructions to his disciples uh, before he leaves. But here we're getting more of a look uh, as the Apostle Paul looks at it and is writing to us through the Spirit of God to tell us some things that are happening. In verse 10, we see that Christ ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. In verse 11 and 12, it says this, and he himself gave, that's Christ, gave while he was ascending, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The pastor teacher is given to the body of Christ to do what? To equip the saints. Right? That equipping is simply discipleship. How does, how does a pastor teacher equip us to do what? The work of the ministry. So as you guys think of me as I'm coming here, um, that's part of my position is how do I help equip you to do what? The work of the ministry. Does it say that I'm doing all the work of the ministry? No. It says that we're given to equip the saint to do the work of the ministry. Note here that the pastor doesn't do all the work of the ministry, right? And last, what is the work of the ministry for? This is extremely important as to, as to some of the purpose of my being here is for the edification of the body of Christ. Awesome things have gone on at Laramie Valley Chapel for a number of years. What we're going to look at is are they edifying the body of Christ in the best way possible, right? How do we pull together all that we're doing in our equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry for the edification of the body of Christ? So we'll look at that. We're going to look as pastors and elders and we're going to pray and say, what, what is it that we could be doing better? Maybe we need to shift some things and how it's being done. Those things will be prayerfully considered. In the near future, I would love to know if you're leading a Bible study, a small group, children's ministry, youth ministry. Get a feel for all the different things that are going on at LBC so that I might take my part, which is to help equip you for the work of the ministry, that the body of Christ might be edified. Also, I've been asked to pray about equipping the family. This is something that's passionate, that I'm passionate about, and it's on my heart. I'll be asking questions like this. Fathers, are you training your children in the admonition of the Lord? Fathers, are you provoking your children to anger? I said in the first service, I'll say it again, that when I ask these questions, I just look in the mirror. I'm like you. I'm, I'm no different. I'm, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, immune to sin. But what do we want? God's word to do, adjust that how we look and do things. So husbands, here's another one. Are you sacrificially loving your wives like Christ loved the church? We've already talked about it. That agape love is, is not based on how the person acts or responds. It's based on you and I saying, this is God's word. And I do it because I love God. Do they deserve it? I don't know. Yes, maybe no. It doesn't matter. My, what is my role? <laughs> to love the way I was loved on the cross that day. Wives, 
Are you obeying your husbands as the Lord and letting him lead? You say, well, if you saw my husband, you wouldn't want him to lead. That doesn't matter. What does God's word tell us? How do we honor and love and serve God first? And let it allow to change the atmospheres of our homes. Children, are you obeying your parents? Well, I hope that these last two weeks have given you an idea just a little bit about me. I'm, we're still adjusting a lot. We've got a lot of things going on. You could be praying for the closing of, uh, of our home. It's, it's kind of a critical thing as far as the next step. We're content to, to sleep on the floor, honestly. <laughs> I'm grateful to have a place to sleep. Um, but that's supposed to happen this week, and then if we close there, we can close here. I hope that this has given you a picture of me a little bit, how I view God's word, right? Not, not as something that I get to interpret, but as something that is. That it's important to me just to teach what it says, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Right? That's what seminary does. It gives us the tools to do that, to, to hopefully separate ourselves from ourselves and teach what God said. I hope you've gotten a little picture of, of just who I am. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for today. <clears throat> Lord, uh, we often say that we surrender all, but in the same breath, Lord, we're letting go with our left hand and we're picking things up with our right hand. I know how inextricably difficult it is to surrender all. Lord, but yet your word says it. Your word declares it. Discipleship clearly means obeying and following you. Lord, we all have failures in this area. And Lord, we know that there is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ. We don't live condemned uh, for our failures, Lord, but yet we see your word calling us up, and Lord, it hurts at times. I pray you give us the grace this week to, to make at least one change, Lord. I pray that somewhere your word has cut to the heart and somebody, including myself, Lord, will say this needs to change. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to we show the world what it looks like to follow Christ. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.